Today on Rolling with New York Mike. The noise that we make, that thunderous sound of motorcycles saying, don't forget us, don't leave us behind. You did that and we're not gonna let you do it anymore. Welcome to Rolling with the most patriotic man I know, my husband. And now, his podcast, Rolling with New York Mike. Get on the ride. Hey, and welcome to Rolling with New York Mike. Yeah, I've been rolling, baby. (laughs) Oh, my God. Hey, two weeks since my last podcast, I've been on the road, rolling, rolling all across America. It's been it's been an amazing trip. I am apologetic that I haven't had a moment to do a podcast. There, there were several times I really wanted to. I was exhausted. I just said, you know what? Uh, I'm just going to put it on the back burner. And when I get to boom, I'll do it. When I get to then when I get home, I'll do it. And I, I'm telling you right now, there's so much. That is exhausting. First of all, riding all day long, every day, day after day. <laughs> it's it, it's just, then you get off the bike and you, you got things you got to do. You, you want to call home. I want to talk to Petrina. I want to I find out what's going on. I want to let everybody know I'm okay. When you're riding across country, we go from gas station to gas station. <laughs> I don't think we stopped at one Starbucks. I'm proud of myself. That one Starbucks. You go to the gas station, get a cup of coffee, and whatever else they have. And more of these gas stations are are getting a, I'm not going to call it a sophisticated lineup of food items, but it's better than it was. And so sometimes you get, one of these places have fresh donuts in the case. I'm, I'm not, the donuts that you get in the cellophane thing from Hostess or something that's Eh, you know, a little dry. None of it's healthy. But when you, when you get one of these places that have a case of pretty fresh donuts, <laughs> I'm giving away trade secrets over here. But <laughs> but that's that's what I do. And if I can find one that's not a sugar donut, one of them old fashions, I'm in business, man. Sometimes you can grab a bagel. A lot of places have chicken. That's always good stuff. Anyway, that's when you when you right now when you stop and and you know you get a hotel and we try to stop before it's dark. I, I I don't like riding. I used to love riding at night till all hours of the night. Less traffic, better conditions. Everything was better. But in the last fifteen years or more, the amount of animals on the road, especially deer, has has become just insane. And I, I, I just, I don't want to deal with it. So, and then, of course, when you're riding nasty weather, it gets nastier when the sun, it does. <laughs> Incrementally nastier. So we don't like riding at night, so we try to stop at 6 o'clock would be good. 7 o'clock, that's okay. And, and then you want to, you know, you go into the hotel and you, you, you can't make reservations in advance I mean, yeah, we, we reserve a hotel. We try to do that before 1, 2 in the afternoon because they'll get booked up. But you're not going to reserve a, a restaurant. So you go to the hotel and you find out what restaurants are around. And usually it's, you know, you, you get you get these pretty decent brands, whether it's Outback or, um, I don't know, some of the other branded little beyond fast food. 
it's not fast food. It's Outback or whatever. It's decent food. And, you, you, you know, you hope you get it. You hope you, you find one close by the hotel. My, my favorite is the, um, is the uh, what you call it? What's that Italian place that I, that I like so much? Well, I'm riding even around town. They make the best salad, whatever. Olive Garden, that's it. So if I get close to an Olive Garden, that'd be great. Didn't see one, <laughs> not this trip. <laughs> so, but nonetheless, I digress. I, I'm, I'm not digressing. I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself over here. Because I want to talk about the whole trip, the, everything about the trip. It was a great trip. And we started off just another Memorial Day ride to Washington, D.C., and um, Rolling to Remember, which was Rolling Thunder. I still find the Sunday event Rolling Thunder, and I, I, I think a lot of the AMVET guys do too, because the, the, the Rolling Thunder label, the noise that we make, that thunderous sound of motorcycles saying, don't forget us, don't leave us behind. You did that, and we're not going to let you do it anymore although it just happened again. But that's the noise. That's the sound. That's why it's rolling thunder. And so, yes, it's rolling to remember, and it's the AMVETs, and I respect them enough to at least, the very least, use their terminology. And by the way, had they been allowed to adopt the name Rolling Thunder, I'm sure they would have. But Rolling Thunder did not allow that. So they didn't. And so it's rolling to remember. So here was the plans. Mark Devot, my good friend Mark Devot, who is a combat controller. Look it up. Uh, uh, seriously. Air Force combat control. It's the pathfinders of World War II. When they first said, you can't just send planes over a battlefield. You have to have someone on the ground that can direct these planes. Oh, even in World War II, they were going hundreds of miles an hour. So they got these guys they called Pathfinders to jump in to the enemy territory where th these the planes are being called, the airstrikes are being called, and these guys would jump in with radios and, and having been trained on the radio, not just how to operate them, fix them, repair them in the field, also how to operate and talk to the pilots and bring in the airstrikes. Takes a lot of training. He even took a training, a lot of training way back then, but the training today is unbelievable. I mean, I went through it in the 60s and it was not easy, okay? It's, it's like every other special ops training op thing, parachuting and survival and all the rest of it. But it's gotten, oh my God, so intense. And, and rightly so. I'm not, this isn't a, um, a criticism of anything. It's an appreciation of how far our military has come in their training processes, especially in the special operations world. So Mark Navat, and I, I've known Mark a long time, and we've talked a lot, and I've come to understand and, and learn more about his service, Desert Storm, South America, Latin America, the things he did, taking down cartels. I mean, there's a lot of um, amazing things that this guy's, and he's still, after getting out of the Air Force, after a, what I'd call a stunning career, 
he became a school teacher. Great, great stories. I, I got to have him on the podcast again. We've done some before, but just his story alone is uh, phenomenal. And even today in his 50s, he still teaches <laughs> on a volunteer basis. He still teaches combat swimming up in Washington State to the uh, TACPs. And that's uh, pretty intense, man. When you're that age and you're, you, you, you're still teaching combat swimming, that's just crazy. He's also acting. But anyway, so Robert Patrick, who's this is our 17th year of riding to the wall together. Robert, also a dedicated boost fighter, was going to his boost fighter national convention, which was taking place in, I think it was Tulsa, Oklahoma City. And me and Mark were going to leave a few days after him because we didn't have to participate in all the events of the booze fighters, but pick him up on the last day. And then we'd leave Oklahoma City and we'd only be 1,500 miles from D.C. So that was our plan. He left on Wednesday. We were going to leave on Friday. I had been getting some notice from Abate of California, of which I was the executive director for 10 years, 96 to 06. And I'm still a life member, and I, I, I definitely believe in the organization and the cause. And they told me they were having a um, unification rally of uh, all the motorcycle rights organizations in California, in Sacramento. And the original note was that it was going to be on Monday. And that would be, the what, the 21st. Um, well, the 22nd, rather. And then I, I received something on Wednesday or Thursday that said it was, on, it was going to be on Sunday. And I, I thought about it. And I said, you know, if it was Monday, there's no way I can leave Sacramento on Monday and make Washington, D.C. on Thursday. And Thursday's important this year because the Rolling Thunder people they're staying in New Jersey, and they have Rolling Thunder events in about 10 or 12 states around the country. And the, the guys from the Rolling Thunder main group out of New Jersey is staying in New Jersey for their Sunday event. But Steve Prager and, and those guys were coming down to Washington on Thursday to be with us at the Candlelight Vigil at the Wall on Friday. So it was important for me, Robert, as well, and Mark, to get there for Thursday to meet those guys. And we didn't have any real plans, and there was nothing that was set in stone. But they were coming down, riding down from New Jersey on Thursday afternoon to meet us Thursday evening. And so I said, I, I can't go for Monday. But when I found out it was on Sunday... I said, look, I can make Washington if I leave Sacramento on Sunday at a reasonable time. So I decided I need, I need to do that. And I contacted the bait and said, okay, I'll be there. Right, the last unification rally, I think, was 2014. And I spoke at that one. And, and it, was, it was a great event. And it means a lot. It means a lot to me as a biker and as an American that these bikers are there fighting for freedom, rallying. But it's not just the helmet law, but the helmet law is really important to me and I think underrated as part of what makes this country great 
is that there are 33 states now, because Nebraska just got rid of their helmet law as of January 1st, 2024. So the legislature just voted it out. That's the 33rd state. I think it was two years ago. Missouri got rid of their helmet law. So it's an ongoing battle. But why would you give the government so much power that they can tell you how to dress? I'm sorry. That's an important thing to me. And, and you could talk to me about seatbelt laws and all the other laws. No, I don't like any of them. But motorcycle helmet laws has a special place in my heart because I, I don't agree. I don't agree that... And I don't want to get into a big argument with people. There are many people who tell me how many lives were saved. And I'm sure that's true. But nonetheless... We can, we'll reserve that for another time. <laughs> That's what I decided. But I also decided that I was going to ride to Sacramento on Saturday so I can speak at their rally on Sunday. And I mentioned to Mark Navat, I said, look, Mark, I know you, know, you plan on riding down to meet Robert in Oklahoma on Friday. And leaving Friday, get there Saturday, Sunday. Yeah, it's a two-day ride for sure. And so I said, I, I understand if you don't want to go with me, but I, I, I'm kind of compelled to go up to speak to this rally. There'll be a few thousand bikers, and I think I, I need to get them some inspiration to keep up this fight. It's been a long time. Since 1992, when the helmet law went in to California, so it's... It's over 30 years now, and people get worn out. And I'm, I'm so, it's important to me to help these people, and I want to do what I can, blah, 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 and on and on. And so Mark was like, yeah, I'm, I'm with you, Mike. I'm riding with you. Wow. That was a big deal. You didn't have to do that. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not so sure it was the smartest thing to do, to go at least a 1,000 miles out of our way. But, hey, Mark's that kind of guy, and I, I really do appreciate it. So we left Saturday morning, rode up to Sacramento. I've got a good friend in Sacramento. His name is 49er Jack. 49er Jack was the 49er, what's the football team? <laughs> the San Francisco 49ers fan of the century. He <laughs> was. He won a... The Fan of the Year Award. I don't know what year. I mean, he's just, you know what I mean? He's born up there. He's, he's, that's his life. That's where he lives. And he's a great 49ers fan. He won that. He really did. <laughs> and, and and he's always, we've known each other a long time, almost 30 years. And he's always asking me. I mean, we'll meet in places like Las Vegas or whatever. But he's always saying, why don't you come up to Sacramento? Which I've been up there once or twice or three times. But He's always asked me, so I was able to call him and say, Jack, guess what? I'm coming to Sacramento. I'll actually be there Saturday night because I have a speaking engagement on Sunday. Well, Jack set the table for us to get up there and took us out to dinner at this sushi restaurant. He loves sushi. I am not a fan of sushi. Let me just say that right away. My wife, Katrina, loves sushi. So I'll go to a sushi restaurant with Petrina. I'll tell you what I like. I'll tell you right now. If you see me in a sushi restaurant, I'll be eating yellowtail. I like. I really, really, really like that. I like yellowtail. That's about my favorite thing in a sushi, in a sushi restaurant. I'll eat a California roll, which I 
I like it. It's not bad. And um, that's about it. <laughs> There's not much else that I really like in a sushi restaurant. But I know Petrina loves sushi. Jack was all over this sushi thing. And I'm like, I'm not going to say, no, take me to dinner. <laughs> that's your place. It's, it just seemed rude not to say, Jack, whatever you, Whatever you want to do, buddy. I really appreciate it. Blah, blah, blah. So we end up going to his favorite sushi place where he knows everybody and everybody knows him. (laughs) And that's Jack. So we get there and we sit at the counter and Jack and Mark get along famously because they're both sushi lovers. Mark, by the way, had just returned from being in Japan for two weeks because his son Noah and Noah's wife and little baby, little two-year-old baby live in Japan. Noah met his wife at UC Davis and uh, she's from Japan and they got married and he was stationed. Noah was in the Air Force. He was stationed first in Korea and then got stationed in Japan and he got out of the Air Force. He just didn't like Biden's Air Force. (laughs) Who can blame him? He got out and he and his wife and baby stayed in Japan. So Mark... And his wife, Darcy, visited Noah and the, and the grandkid in Japan. Mark got back, like, on Monday or Tuesday, then went up to... I mean, it's a long story, man. He actually went... We did the event at Mount Soledad. Then we rode up to do the, the, the combat control reunion in Las Vegas. I rode back. He rode to LAX and they flew from LAX to Japan. Crazy, right? Yeah, they did. And so that's what they did. Then they flew back. Darcy flew home to Washington State and Mark jumped on his bike, which was at Robert Patrick's house. And um, that was it. So I rode up, because Mark was already up there in L.A., met me on the five, somewhere around Six Flags, and we we went and saw Jack up in Sacramento. Jack took us to his favorite sushi place and tried to get me to eat all this crazy sushi stuff, which I don't want. And I'm going, Jack, just give me some yellowtail and a California roll. But there's such thing as a 49er Jack roll which I didn't know about, but of course there is. Because how could Jack have his favorite sushi restaurant and not have a 49er Jack roll? So I take the 49er Jack roll and out of the goodness of my heart and trying to be as polite and as accommodating as I can be, I actually eat this 49er Jack roll. Then he wants to give me this other stuff, this gooey looking stuff. And I'm going, Jack, enough. I don't want any more of this stuff. There's Mark and Jack going, Oh, come on, Mike. It's so good. It's so good. And we're sitting there at the counter right in front of this sushi chef who's making all this sushi stuff. And I go, I don't even like the looks of this stuff. I do not want it. Please, just don't push this anymore. Mike, come on, man. What's it? This is, oh, Mike, you're going to love this. This is so good. So I finally go, okay, I'm tired of listening to this bullshit. I'm tired of being pushed around. Give it to me. I'll take it. Okay. I take it. I taste it. And I'm telling you, I tasted it. And not that I hadn't planned on what I was going to do, but 
it was still that look factor. It's just the way I am. You 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 don't, you want to say this? Something wrong with it? Maybe there is. I don't know. I don't know anybody else, honest to God, that that doesn't like sushi. But I that's me. So I took it and I spit it out all over the place, right to the the sushi chef. I didn't care. I just I said that. Now you happy? I tried it and oh my god. Oh well. Hey, what are you gonna do? I I just I'm sorry. I'm I'm a rude person sometimes. But that was as much as I could take. And I, I just, I don't like being pushed into something I don't like being pushed into. So that's what I did. And we, we you know, they laughed about it. I knew, I knew that <laughs> Jack was <laughs> a, a little more pissed off than he liked to be. Well, that's kind of pissed off too, actually. So anyway, that was great. Now, the next day, Sunday, Mark and I get up early because we got a hotel that was near Jack's house, so I think it's Auburn or someplace like that. I mean, in a, in a nice place. And it was a, about a 20-mile, 20 25-mile ride to the capital. But we also could leave all our bags in the hotel. We got like a 12.30 checkout, which was like a late checkout. We, and the hotel was on 80 en route to... Carson City, Reno, going over the 80 and all that. And so it was on the way to Washington. So we did 20 miles to the Capitol. I got there. We got there a little early, and I wanted to, because I wanted to get a feel, get a lay of the land, get a sense of what was going on. And I haven't been very active in Abate for a long time, since 06, when I dropped out, you know, suddenly and immediately. As the, I mean, 10 years is a long time to be an executive director, in my opinion, of an organization like that. And what happened was fighting helmet laws, getting the approval to, for motorcycles to be in the HOV lane, getting veterans license plates. There's a lot to be very proud of. And keeping up the fight, little battles, like when we had a fight, when they had a rule that if, you know, once a week when you went to work, you had to park your car and take a van, go in a van pool. Yeah, that was back in the 90s. They wanted to make you take a van pool. And we said, well, if you ride a motorcycle, you should be excluded. So we went to bat. We went all the way. And we had a bill put in, and we fought it. And the Sierra Club beat us. They did. They beat us. So if you ride a motorcycle, you don't get to park your motorcycle. Oh, I'm sorry, to ride your motorcycle. That one day a week, just like if you had a car, you had to jump in the van pool. That's just crazy. But those are battles. They were battles that we won and battles that we didn't win. We came very close to winning the helmet law battle back in the late 90s. And we had agreed that if you have insurance, you would be excluded. But there was some members, part of a crew, that said that they didn't want to do that. Now, that's how they took the helmet law out of Florida and out of Texas, and I'm sure other states as well, that seemed reasonable to us that they ask us to have insurance. I mean, they demand insurance if you drive in the car. So anyway, we were going with that, and one of our guys testified against us. The same guy went out 
and got something like 12 or 15 or 20 helmet tickets. And then he convinced the board of abate to back him with an attorney to fight the helmet ticket as a way to end the helmet law. Now, look, we had one very successful legal battle where we got police prohibited from stopping you based on you're wearing a non-compliant helmet. So they can't stop you and question your helmet because of a bait. And that was done right after the helmet law went into effect, like 1994. It was a legal case, and we brought the legal case. I think when it was passed, I was at that time the director. So it had to be around 96. I can't remember the attorney's name. He was a good guy. And, and it was a hard-fought battle. And yes, we paid for it, and we won. So no police officer can stop a biker because he doesn't think his helmet is legal. Okay? They just can't do it. There's a lot of details about this, and it makes a lot of sense if I go in there and describe all the, everything about it and what happened and why. But nonetheless, that's what happened. So we've done a lot as a Bay of California. And like I said, I'm still a life member. So, but when, when they hired this same attorney, good guy, and they were going to pay him a bunch of money, they raised hundreds of thousands of dollars from abate members to fight this nut jobs battles that, because he got all these. Now, I've gotten helmet tickets, and I fought helmet tickets, and I won the fight. And then I'd win, and I went in and said, no, no, no. I, I wanted to appeal it and, and go back to trial. I mean, I did everything I could with this judge to do it. And, and you realize the court's not going to change the law. There's just no way. And I think the board of directors I was with, I thought those guys knew and understood it. And yet, they were pressured into raising that money and spending it on on a futile effort. And, and I saw that right up front, a ripoff. Hundreds of thousands of dollars can go a long ways in a group like Abate to change laws like helmet laws. You, you really, that kind of money you can use it in better ways. But to raise it from our members and get give these people the false hope that you can get rid of the helmet law by fighting this one guy's tickets, there was just no way. It didn't happen, but I just dropped out. At that point, after 10 years, I had received enough bullshit. There's no good deed that goes unpunished. There were some comments to some of the articles that I was writing and some of the things that I was doing. And I just said, I think I've overstepped my welcome. So I dropped out, but then I saw this and I'm compelled because I, I do respect these people that are out there fighting for our rights. Any of these organizations, whether it's an abate organization, NRA, rifle, gun owners, anything else, any organization that fights for our rights, free speech, is, is so important. And, and this group is important to me. And so I, I decided I'd go. Mark came with me. We get there. There was quite a few people. They had the whole the streets blocked off. They put us in the parking spot. They were ready for us. Put in a spot where we can get out easy and early as soon as I finish my little speech. And 
then I got to meet some of the new people that have been doing the job in the bait that I did for many years. And that was great. There were some impressive people. They really were. And and then um, Mark Buckner, who's the CEO and has been for like 30-something years of the MRF, the Motorcycle Riders Foundation. Now, I've talked about the Motorcycle Riders Foundation quite a bit on, my, on this podcast. They do a great job, and they have since the 80s. And uh, Wayne Curtin, who was the political director of um, uh, the MRF back then, and was instrumental in getting rid of the national helmet law, that was a big deal. In 76, the country passed a, nas- a national helmet law. And, and I didn't mind reminding the crowd after Mark spoke that it was Mark Buckner and Wayne Curtin and those guys back then that got rid of the national helmet law along with the 55-mile-an-hour speed limit. And people don't even remember that there was a national 55-mile-an-hour speed limit. And there were four criterias for states to get federal highway funds. You had to have a 21-year and older drinking age, um, a point, uh, .08, uh, drinking uh, limit or whatever you know, how you register on the on the on the alcohol Richter scale <laughs> had to be put. You had to be under point zero eight, uh, otherwise you're you're DUI, and um, you had to have a fifty five mile mile an hour speed limit and the motorcycle helmet law for for adults, and well, motorcycle helmet law for everybody, and so. By eliminating two of those four items, we got rid of the the MRF, got rid of that national helmet law requirement, and while they did it, they were able to get rid of the 55-mile-an-hour speed limit. Otherwise, you'd still have it because NHTSA, National Highway Traffic Safety Organization Agency, um, they want to keep every little... Every little safety regulation they could find. That's all these people live to promote safety, for you to be safe. They'll put you in a child seat till you're 21 years old. <laughs> they could. <laughs> that's, that's, who, that's, that's who these people are. You have to understand. That's what drives them. So I was able to get up there, and, and it was interesting. Mark Buckner spoke for I haven't seen Mark in years, at least 20 years. And Mark's a great guy. He's been dedicated for all these years. The MRF has been doing this great job all these years. And you don't see a lot of, there's not a lot of fanfare. They're recognized every year at the um, motor, at the Sturgis Motorcycle Museum and Hall of Fame, and that's great. Um, Kirk Willard, Hardtail, has, has gotten some good, Exposure and rewards. He's the president. But they're really an understated agency for all the great work that they do. Um, you know, they have legislation week in um, every May in Washington, D.C., where you meet, you know, go out and meet your legislators and, and, and you know, lobby for, you know, to get rid of profiling laws and all kinds of stuff and helmet laws and, you know, whatever else your state has and so they do a lot and for all they do they do not get much recognition 
and even the bait itself and the MMA, um, the, the, the recognition by the average motorcyclist, and certainly by the dealer network or by the OEMs, just isn't there. And I, I thought about addressing that. And then I said to myself, you know, I'm on my way to Washington, D.C. for Memorial Day. I'm, I'm a vet. I've been going to this Memorial Day now. This is my 40th year. It means a lot to me. And I go to recognize the, the names on the wall. I say names on the wall. Those are human beings that fought for this country in Vietnam. And I also go, and when we go to the Korean War Memorial, we go to Arlington Cemetery. All these men, and now men and women, who fought for this country, for for what? And and it was important to me, it, it still is important to me, it's very important, that I stop and just thank these people for coming out on a Sunday and fighting for freedom. I definitely remember so vividly being at Ortega Highway waiting for Red Baron. Red lived in San Diego, was with me, was one of the early board members. And one of the guys that motivated me to you know, get on the board and become eventually the executive director. And we never agreed on a lot of stuff. But I remember waiting for him one Saturday when we were riding up to Sacramento to go to a board meeting. And then on Monday morning, you know, the board meeting would be Sunday. And then on Monday morning, we'd be at the Capitol lobbying for motorcycle rights. And I'm, I'm, I'm sitting there waiting for him, and he pulls up, and we're waiting for a third guy, and we're watching all these bikers rolling up on, you know, take a highway, rolling, you know, it's a winding highway that goes from the 5 all the way to the 15, and about 35 miles of twisty roads that everybody liked riding on, and all these guys that, you know, going up the highway and going... And we're looking, I remember looking at <laughs> and saying, these people even have a clue that we're working this hard. I said, I could see us coming back after we get rid of the helmet laws. And all these people are riding like we used to ride. No helmets, having fun. They're not, not having a clue how we got rid of a helmet law or even how we got to have a helmet law. <laughs> I said, they, 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 don't, they don't have a clue and they probably won't have a clue. And here we are, instead of having a good time riding up Ortega Highway and going to, you know, this place or that place, we're, we're going 500 miles the other way up to Sacramento. We laughed about it. But it's true. And here are all these people, thousands of club members and hog members and just, you know, the average Jane and Joe who are just bikers going on a Sunday and some of them staying over till Monday to lobby the legislature and doing it to fight for freedom, freedom of the road. And, and I felt like it's, it's important to let them know, and I did, that, that that's what we fought for. That's what we died for. That's what we went to war for. And so my speech, just pretty much like the one I gave in 2014, was about you need to appreciate how much you mean to me that you're here 
fighting for our freedom. I did not go to war to fight for a, a minimum wage or a living wage or fight for government involvement in our lives and rules and regulations. I went to war for one thing, and that was freedom. And I did things I hope God forgives me for, fighting for freedom. And I saw things that I wish I could unsee, fighting for freedom. The one thing that's being eroded and taken away from us as Americans every single day. And why is it that this motorcycle community fighting, hopefully still fighting every day to get rid of the helmet law? Why is that stupid helmet law so damn important? And, and I said it then and I'll say it, you know, I said it on Sunday. I said it in, two, four, in every speech. I said it's so important because a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. And, the, you know, the Hummel Law may not be the weakest, but it's the smallest. It's one of the most small and insignificant links in the chain of freedom. And that's why it's so damn important. Because if we can go in there and fight for things like getting rid of helmet laws with telling a government, no, you cannot tell me how to dress. When you could, when you could fight for that and, and you could win that fight, we're just fighting for it. Because you're not here because you have to win. You're here because you can fight. And you have the right to fight. And that's what freedom is. And I wanted to give them that message. And I did. Now, I'll say this. I didn't feel like, well, the last time I spoke at this rally, there was a lot more. Yeah, honestly, there was 10,000 people or more. And... I just had, you know, long enough to say my piece and get off the stage. I kind of felt like, you know what? <laughs> I rode all the way up there. Mark joined me. <laughs> I, I need to spend a little more time. I need, I need to give a longer message. And, and I really felt like I, I wanted to. And, I, and, and so I probably spoke a little longer than I should have. Now, I'm always, and I joked about it, I said... If my wife, Petrina, was there, she'd be right up front. Give me that old, okay, cut it off now, cut it off. And and she's not here, so I'm sorry for all you people that are going to have to suffer through this, And, and which was kind of true. You know, usually I'll get up there, and well, I should be off the stage in five minutes or six. Uh, I'm on there till, you know, eight or ten. And, you know, she's up there, you know, running her hand across her throat. Get off the stage. And... Um, Mark Navat filmed the whole thing, and it was like, he filmed it in two-minute segments, eight two-minute segments, so I spoke for about 16 minutes. I thought I was, I went way over, probably went, you know, like I normally do, go wandering off into the, <laughs> into the ether about issues, but, you know, I just felt it was important, so we did that, did that, made my speech, and then just got out of there. Um, yeah, it, it, it's, I'm glad I did it. I don't know. I didn't, I haven't spoken to anybody since. <laughs> I don't know if what I said meant anything to them. It meant a lot to me. Um, I don't know if it was good, bad, or indifferent if I spoke too long. I got a real big hug from, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, you know, from the MRF dude, man. And that was, that meant a lot to me. That guy works hard. I see him, you know, year after year after year, Mark Buckner. And so the fact, you know, that he stood there and 
listened to everything I said after he spoke, um, and then gave me a big hug. It meant a lot. So, and I and I thank him for it, and I thank him for all he does, um, and all those guys at the MRF, and all those people at the Bay of California, and all the abates all over the country. They do a lot, and and I started to say it, and I, and I will say it now. It's time that these um, OEMs, these you know manufacturers. Of, of, of original equipment um, get involved because now that the government is, is finally showed their colors you know finally which we've seen this all along but not to the degree where they're saying there won't be any motorcycles in 10 years yeah there, there'll be electric motorcycles that you'll have to charge and recharge and Goes, I mean, there's going to be, but you're not going to have, when, when they tell the OEMs, hey, there's going to be no more internal combustion engines, how do you, how do you not want to be part of the group that's the grassroots group fighting that? Grassroots is everything in this country. Grassroots is what really moves the needle. So... I, I just think that, um, you know, it's time for these people to get involved. It's time for the average dealer. You know, when I was active, as a, you know, I was a dealer. Yeah, I mean, I was active before I was a dealer, but I became a dealer. And I stayed active and stayed involved and took a lot of criticism from a lot of dealers about, you know, the fact that, why are you doing this? We don't want to get rid of helmet laws. And I'm not sure if I, I can mimic them and say, we sell a lot of helmets and we want to sell more. I, that may not be fair. I think a lot of them legitimately felt that riding with a helmet is safer and it'd be a better thing for motorcycling. I mean, I don't really know. I, I can't get into their heads. We've had some conversations. Most of them were not productive. And I, I was not impressed. Um, and most of them scorned, you know, this whole abate movement. And I, I didn't understand it then. And certainly now, I'm like, why won't you embrace this organization that means so much to motorcycle? This is your core customer. I just don't think they agree with that. But I think that Abate and the MRF and, you know, all these groups would be well served to keep lobbying these dealers to get more and more involved. Now, not only Wayne Curtin, but other past uh, political directors of the MRF have become the, the political managers at Harley Corporate. So it's not that Harley Corporate doesn't get it. It's really not. They do get it. I just don't know what they... If they understand what they could do about it. And why... God bless me. Thank you. And why it's so important. Well, they obviously do. Because they have hired these guys. And uh, put them in big roles. Big positions. And... So, yeah, they do know how important it is. Um, I just think that they also know that they have to walk a fine line. Because you don't want to piss off the government. 
pardon my sneezing. Very sorry. But anyway, uh, continuing my rolling podcast, we rolled. But Mark and I, this might have to, I might have to tell this story in two parts. <laughs> anyway, Mark and I left about 12.30. We, we left the uh, rally when I finished my speech. That was about 10, 10.30. Rode back to the hotel, packed our bikes, and then got on the road. And, of course, we decided we were going to take Route 80. Mark is great at um, all this technical stuff. Having been a bona fide combat controller, now, it, it, it's just a fact. And there's a lot of combat controllers that don't have Mark's skill set about tracking weather on a motorcycle. But this guy's good. He's got a great um, motorcycle, you know, weather radar thing on his phone and he keeps it right there on his bike and pop 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 and he we tracked the weather going straight across and he even looked at 70 and 40 I mean we could easily have dropped down and gone these other routes but nope straight across on 80 and um yeah I mean we did I think the first day we did a little over 700 miles then we did over 600 the next day and that you know gave us a jump start in order to make up for the time loss. And then we met Robert in Cleveland and spent that night, yeah, just the night, didn't spend, didn't spend a lot of time, went from Cleveland on Wednesday. That's right, Sunday, we made it all the way to someplace. Yeah, w- w- Wildemar, something like that. And um, someone's in Nevada, and yep, <laughs> it was a, it was a long one. The next one, I think that was the 500 mile day because we left at 12:30. The next day was the 700 mile day, and that put us, my God, I don't even know where it was. It was someplace. And then the third day, I guess, was Wednesday, right? No, uh, Sunday night. Monday was the second day. Tuesday was the third. Yeah, the third. And then, because there was a few, one 700 and then an almost 700. And then on Wednesday, we met Robert, and he came up from Oklahoma. So he met us in Cleveland. And then we bounced from Cleveland on Thursday into Washington, which, if I remember right, was a pretty rough ride. Yeah, I think it was. But we made it. We got there. We got there in good time. And, um,. It was great. We went right to the hotel. We always stay at the same place. The uh, JW Marriott. Parked the bikes. Walked to Shelly's. Grabbed a cigar. And then we walked over from Shelly's. We walked over to Old Ebbets to meet the guys from Rolling Thunder. And, um, you know, my, uh, Steve Prager and his crew, which was great. And... We didn't expect. We had um, what's what's his name? The hog guy. Oh my god, I can't remember his name. I'll get it because I got to make a really good guy. He's been the hog director for a long time. Been with Holly for over twenty years. Really good guy. And then a brand new guy from Holly, Brian Myrick, and he's they brought him in to replace Tim Budzine, who was head of military. Um, everything, promotions, events, sales, everything military, um, and a great guy. We were very disappointed 
to find out that Tim wasn't going to be there because I consider Tim a friend. But here's this guy, Brian. And I'm telling you right now, from the minute I met this guy, he was just, he, he was and is a great guy. I mean, Tim, I'm assuming Tim found this guy. Um, Tim got a great guy. You know, somebody told me a long time ago, the most important thing you could do if you get a job, a position, whatever, is re replace yourself. Find somebody to replace you because if you're going to want to move up the ladder, you're going to have to have someone in the position you just left. And boy, Tim Budzin did that. Um, this guy, like, right away. And we ended up, all of us sitting around the table, there's about 12 of us, and this guy Carlos brings me, Robert, and Mark a box of incredible Cuban cigars as a gift. Um, I mean, it's always great to see Steve and Jim. Mike was, uh, I mean, a, a former Marine. What a cool guy he was. And um, then, of course, after dinner, and, and the dinner was great. I mean, anything we wanted, we had, and, and, and Brian just picked up the check. And that, that was phenomenal. And, of course, if you haven't been to Old Ebbets, it's been there since the mid-1800s, and it's just a great, great old Washington restaurant. So we had dinner there. Oh, yeah, and, and Brian gave us all gifts, these um, hog uh, toolkits. It was just it was just great. And, you know, I told him, I said, Brian, you need to, you know, go around and get a feel for things and, and, and you know, just not jump in the middle of it, but get a sense of what's going on. And he looked at me and said, Mike, what the hell do you think I'm doing here? I said, yeah, you're, you're right. <laughs> and it's true. I got to say that um, on the missing, the missing was top of the list, Mike Lanetto. So we all really missed, but that's another story. So, but uh, we'll I'll hear from Mike at some point, I'm sure. And there was there's got there has to have been a story. So that was Thursday night, and it was a great night. And so you know, again, we left we left Old Ebbets and went back to Shelley's, hung out, smoked cigars, ate, drank, had a good time. It, it was great. I mean, going to Shelley's every year is a ritual that's at least 25 years old, if not longer. And it just, it's always, it's always great. And of course, when we go to Shelley's, there's, there's Tony, Tony Rubo. And, and he's the best, just the best. And treats us like royalty, really, truly like royalty. So just... To go over all of it, I, I, I think there's too much to go on here, but um, Friday night we rode to, Ro I think it was Roanoke, some town in Virginia, about 150 miles, <laughs> 150 miles south of where we were, to visit Robert Patrick's grandfather's grave. Now, there's a long story here about that, and there's a damn good reason. You know, Robert's been coming with me to Rolling Thunder. This, like I said, is our 17th year of riding with me. And that first year, when he came with me, um, it was he had just got back from a, uh, a USO tour. If you know when he was doing that that TV show, The Unit, um, great show. And 
the, he came back from the USO tour inspired. Said, Mike, I know you ride to to the wall every year. I'd like to go with you. And if that's okay, I said, yeah, sure, let's go. And it was, a, you know, when we got there, it wasn't, there was no preparation. It wasn't like we said to everybody, hey, Robert Patrick's coming, you know, get ready. No, 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 no. He just rode, no fanfare, no prep, nothing. And we get there, and a lot of people recognize him. And next thing you know, um, uh, Mike DiPaolo, Magic Mike, who was the MC at the time, had been the MC from the beginning. Um, and he, he MC'd the, uh, the, the events, the rally after the ride at the Lincoln Memorial. And he sees and recognizes Robert, brings him up and says, come on up, you know. And, of course, Robert grabbed me and grabbed me up afterwards. But he's... He, and, and one of Robert's things, and what he said was, you know, his grandfather was a colonel. And his grandfather, who, you know, he really has clear memories, but when he was a very young kid, maybe, you know, died when he was like six or eight years old. But his grandfather was in World War One, World War Two, and Korea. And he died... He was 64 years old. He died. He was still active duty at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. And and so when Robert talked about his family and and how even though he didn't serve, he always felt this legacy. He felt proud that, you know, his grandfather, his grand uncles and great grandfathers and all these other Patricks and and um that, you know, that they had served and fought for this country. I mean, he goes back a long ways. Um, you know, he might go back to the Mayflower, for crying out loud. So it's always been important. And, and then I don't know where it came up. I think it was because Mark Navat, who goes to Fort Bragg quite a bit, you know, representing the Combat Control Association, he goes to Pope Air Force Base, which is Fort Bragg, um, and so on one of his trips, he came across the cemetery where Robert's grandfather was buried. So somehow, some way, this became something that was important to him. And so on Friday, me, Mark, and Robert got on the motorcycles and took this ride. And I'm telling you right now, this was not an easy ride. But I'm, I'm going to wrap this up and, and say when we got down there, because this is only a part of this trip. I didn't think it was going to be this difficult to tell the story. But, it, you know, it's a good story. It's a good story to tell. And it keeps me out of politics until next time, which it's going to be pretty quick next time. We're going to, we're going to get into this, and I'll, I'll try to make up for not doing the podcast for, for several weeks um, and get another one in in a few days uh, if I can. I, I promise I'm trying. So... But real quick, we go all the way down to wherever it was in Virginia and find this cemetery, and we get there, and Robert's booze fighter brothers, led by this guy, Bam, who's a retired Army guy, 22-year retired major, who's, I think he's the president of that local booze fighters club, had found the gravesite and met us there. And then when we turned the corner after we left the uh, field house 
of the cemetery and we turned the corner. There was all these club members. There were 25 of them at least, including wives, you know, and, and it was really something to see. They knew, they could feel, I guess, how important it was for Robert to honor his grandfather. And, um, you know, the next podcast I'll start off here because the next night at the TAPS event was important. Um, this day at that cemetery was important, and I don't want to pay them short shrift. So I'm going to let this one go and continue with the next time, and then we'll get into politics. <laughs> I'm New York Mike. Thanks for rolling with me. I'm out. Thanks for listening to Rolling with New York Mike. Listen, follow, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts to keep this podcast rolling.